I look at all these metrics as well, because again, the market is your tailwind, right? That impacts your business plan and how well you execute. So it's important to vet that up front before you dive deeper in, mm. into the needs of the individual investment. Welcome to The Real Deal, a commercial real estate investing podcast. I'm your host, Aman Shahi. There's a ton going on in the world right now, and much of it impacts real estate investors. The Real Deal podcast will take a look at what's happening and how it influences you as a real estate investor. Each episode is a 20-minute segment dedicated to distilling the day's most important news, so you can stay up to date on what's going on in the world and how it might affect the commercial real estate market. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Real Deal Podcast. Today, we have a special guest on the show. Her name is Vessi Kapulian. Welcome to the show. Vessi, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Austin. And thank you, Aman, for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Awesome. All right, let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you get into real estate? Yes, happy to share that. I guess you could argue that the seed of real estate was planted in me many, many moons ago when I was still in Bulgaria, growing up behind the Iron Curtain. And for many people at the time, the concept of investing naturally translated into hard assets. For most people, that meant real estate, precious metals and whatnot. So it wasn't really until I came to the US 20, 25 years ago and, and that I discovered the stock market, but didn't really quite warm up to it. it felt very much like a big gambling or casino operation. Yeah. So uh, the real estate seed finally germinated in 2017 when I bought my first investment property out of state. I currently mm -hmm. live and work in Los Angeles, California. My goals at the time were really as a way to build an, a retirement nest egg, diversify away from the mm. stock market and find a cash flowing asset. And that was going well. So that led me to purchase a second property. And these are all in the residential space mm. until the light bulb went on. Of, and I thought, well, I could probably scale this further. But for me to do that, I have to buy a lot of single family homes or yeah. a lot of duplexes and triplexes. Yeah. And so that naturally led to um, me expanding into the multifamily space. I, I made that transition about a year or so ago, decided to focus on the Florida market for deal sourcing and as far as skill set, focus on underwriting, um, not only for my own deals, but as a way to add value to others. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, yeah, looking forward to continuing that journey and growing into the multifamily space. And how did you get into your first multifamily deal? It was a lot of hustle. And that's why I said it's very important to focus. First of all, find an, a community of like-minded individuals. I, I joined a mastermind. You don't have to join one. But for me, it was important for a number of reasons. One, to get a more structured um, educational content via coursework. Two, accountability via access to a mentor or coach. And three, access to a network of like-minded individuals who are motivated mm -hmm. to do deals and who you can potentially partner with. Once you're in that environment, 
I always advise people to focus, focus on the market, especially if you're going to be underwriting, that that will be key. And then focus on a skill set, whether that's attracting capital, whether that's acquisitions, which is finding and underwriting the deal, or whether that's asset management. Focus on a skill set because focus is power. And so in my case, I focused on on the Florida market and I focused on underwriting. So my first and second deal came almost around the same time. By the time they came around, I had underwritten nearly 200 deals. So there was a lot of hustle, a lot of persistence. But it's helpful because over time, the more deals you do, and and that's where the power of focus comes into play, the more deals you do, the better you learn your market and and the right deal comes along. At some point, you don't even have to go through the full underwrite to know, yeah, this is a good deal and the numbers will work. So that's how I got the first deal that I sourced. It's it's a small 11 unit Tampa. And the second deal followed right after for that one. I was being effectively the second set set of eyes and helping one of the uh, GP partners on the deal, underwrite the deal, vet the numbers, and it it looked great. And that's when I was asked, would you consider joining, maybe raising a little bit of capital and and, and helping during the diligence? So I gladly accepted that invite because I I knew the team and the operators, Um, the market was very strong. And of course, the deal itself um, checked out. So even though it was outside of my core market, I jumped in because everything else made sense. And uh, you talk about underwriting a lot. What is underwriting? Why we need to do underwriting? What, what's the purpose of it? It's an art and a science is what I like to tell people. It really is a way to not only evaluate the deal, but also project out, craft the business plan and figure out does this investment make sense for me and my investor base based on our investment criteria? And I say it's an art and science because the scientific, there are certain rules that everyone follows that are typically built into various models that are out there in the market. That's the scientific part of it. Certain principles, right, that you don't deviate from. Um, but the art of it is comes into the judgment. There is a lot of judgment uh, piece that you need to exercise, which comes with experience. And again, I bring up knowing the market um, that comes into play and that could really impact right what the outcome is. Because you can put anything into a model and get beautiful returns, but are these realistic expectations? That's where the combination of art and science comes in. So can you walk us a little deeper into the processes of underwriting? What do you look at? What metrics do you look at? And how do you know what your metrics are correct? I'd like to keep it to five key principles. And I'll I'll go rather quickly through them and then we can dive into each one if you'd like. Um, First, I start with the market and the sub-market because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things you can do to a property, but you cannot necessarily lift and shift it to a different location. Typically, when I start underwriting, I already have my core markets defined. And again, for me, these are Tampa, Orlando, and Jacksonville. So I'm already aware of the macro trends. But even within those markets, there are sub-markets or pockets that could make a big difference on, on how 
your business plan pans out. So a few other uh, metrics or key performance indicators are I, I look at is one is the crime rate. Personally, I, I stay away from class D properties and D areas. There are investors who, who take on those. That's just not me and my investor base. Um, so crime rate is one. Median household income is two. Why does that matter? Because for the most part, it defines the ceiling or the cap on how much rent you can charge uh, within that certain pocket, right? Unless you completely change the demographic, which is, again, not very realistic, alongside with that poverty rate. Initially, I do like a virtual drive through the area just to get a feel of are there major retailers around? What, What does the area look like? Once you dig deeper, then there's a little bit more research you do with your boots on the ground. But for that preliminary underwrite, I look at those metrics. Once that checks out, then the next point is your top line or your rents. Where are current rents and where are they projected to grow? In the past couple of years, we saw unprecedented rent growth. The market is adjusting and in in some Mm -hmm. cases, rents are even declining not year over year yet, we're not seeing that, but quarter over quarter they are. So yeah. that's something to take into consideration as you project out the future revenue stream. Um, and alongside with that, when you're looking at the top line is the vacancy factor as well, the economic and the physical vacancy. Again, the past couple of years were unusual. So as you project out, uh, you need to factor a more normalized level. On the expense side, that's item number three. I look at each line item, but your three key expenses that will make a big difference are your taxes, your insurance, especially in my market insurance, and then your labor, which is your property management fee or potentially payroll. Um, So normalizing those as well is important so you don't get any surprises before closing. Number four is your cap rate, your entry cap rate and your exit cap rate, and which has a multiplier effect on your valuation. So making sure that your entry cap rate is where the market is, not necessarily what you're purchasing at, and then factoring in an increase down the road should the market not turn the way you expected it to. Um, Number five is your debt terms. Your debt Mm. is your biggest partner, typically bringing Mm. in anywhere from 50 to 75% of the capital Mm. in the marketplace it's around 50 so your your debt cost right the the debt terms do impact your deal and last but not least i guess number six would be reserves uh, making Mm. sure you you capture um, those appropriately apart for capex Um, costs have been rising although they're starting to normalize but you want to make sure you have enough buffer so there are no surprises there and then uh, making sure you have an adequate operating um, reserves just to plan for a rainy day if it comes along. So those are the the six factors, I guess. I said five, but it's actually six that I look at yeah. to do my preliminary underwrite. You mentioned about the cap rates, exit cap rate and entry cap rate. So entry cap rate, I understand how much income we are making, what is and why we can find out that. But how do you determine the exit cap rate? Mm-hmm. It's an excellent question. And and the reality is nobody has a crystal ball. 
it's always good to be conservative and, and conservative meaning you project that cap rates would increase, which effectively um, reduces your valuation. Now, yeah. if the market turns otherwise in the past couple of years, again, yeah. they've been unusual because we've been seeing a lot of cap rate compression, right? Yeah. So now, even though cap rates are not necessarily correlated to interest rates, they are impacted by interest rates, yeah. which rose rapidly over the course of the last nine months or so. Um, and so inevitably, in, 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 in a lot of markets, cap rates are starting to reverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know at what pace they will reverse. I don't know if we'll ever get to like a 6 or 8% cap rate. But at least for now, in the current market, I'm including larger year-over-year increase. I think most people tend to do around 10, maybe 15 basis points a year. Mm-hmm. Now I'm looking at a larger number just to build in more cushion. And again, mm-hmm. that doesn't materialize. It only benefits you and it improves your valuation down the road. But if we have a maybe prolonged market softness or, or another market unexpected market event that builds in the cushion up front so you can anticipate to some extent some of those market uh, fluctuations without adversely impacting your property or at least baking in some cushion to offset some of that effect. And it sounds like there are a lot of aspects to consider when it comes to underwriting. It's not just about the property itself that we focus this on. So as you underwrite hundreds of deals, how do you keep it efficient so that you don't drive yourself crazy? What is that process like? First, I advise people to select a model. There are a ton out Mm -hmm. there and it really boils down to your own comfort level. None is perfect. They're all lacking one capability or another. But I advise people pick a model and just use that model. Be really good with it, really familiar with it. It also helps you down the road as you compare contrast deals. If you're jumping from one model to another, they each have a slightly different outcome. They'll never give you the exact same IRR or, or cash on cash or other return parameters. They're all they're all different. So pick a model for consistency purposes. Know it really well. Know how the formulas flow um, to and from each other. Um, and over time, that that helps you be more efficient with using the tools. Um, and then, like I said, the market helps because now in the beginning, right, you may have to more frequently perhaps call your property managers, you're validating comps. Yes, you can get a lot of information online, but that's not necessarily perfect, right? Um, or you may have to call your insurance broker a little bit more frequently to validate the insurance, but you you get to a point where you know your market, so you have some general knowledge that's pretty accurate as far as some of those big line items and where they would end up. That helps you be more efficient because you don't have to make that extra phone call anymore. You will if the numbers get closer and then you really want to vet the deal before you put forward that LOI. But knowing your market, being consistent with the model, and then just staying abreast of all all the changes, right? So you can quickly update your model if necessary to capture the current market trends. And what's the average time that you spent on every deal for underwriting? If you see uh, financials, what's the first thing you look at it Mm -hmm. if the property is not stable? Mm -hmm. That you want to underwrite quickly? 
Yes, so a lot of that comes with reps. So in the beginning, it was taking me a little bit longer um, to go through the process. Um, but the more deals you underwrite, the more the faster you become. So now for a preliminary underwrite, it probably takes me about half an hour, uh, sometimes even less. And again, that's just for preliminary underwrite. Once you have your, frankly, if you have your criteria, for example, I, I don't look at older properties that are in the 1960s, or if I know the area, there are certain areas I stay away from. So these would automatically exclude properties that are coming my way or, or unit mix. That's another one that's maybe a little bit more obvious that you don't even have to go through the full analysis. Now, once you do the preliminary right, if the numbers are close enough, that's where you need to dig a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. um, and that's validating your rent comps through your local boots on the ground, typically property manager. If you're under LOI or, or contract, you would likely be doing secret shopping and, and visiting the market to refine those further. Same thing with your insurance quote, lender quote, you'll probably be reaching out to your insurance and lending partners to firm these up and, and really refine those numbers in their underwrite. Um, so the underwriting never really stops once you find yeah. a deal that's is close enough. You have that first call at 30 minutes, but from there on, you're constantly refining and updating the numbers. And that could take sometimes hours once you're in diligence, right? It mm -hmm. could take days. And even after you close on a deal, you're still underwriting, right? You're constantly updating your model, one, to see how you're tracking relative to projections, but also you want to keep a pulse on the market and know where mm. you're at relative to that. So it's a that's one thing I love about it. It's not a static process, but it's something that's always evolving as you get new diligence information. That's a great point. The fact that underwriting is actually a continuous process, and we would use that even after the deal closes, we need to keep on tab of how the operations are going. Are we on track to hit our target, to hit our performance target? And how you can make more efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you said, because you know every underwriting I did in my past, I noticed one thing, every rent rule and T12 is different. How do you solve that complexity? Like, you know, you see some new expense item. What is this? How do you fix that issue in your underwriting? When I do my preliminary underwrite, I usually have a few questions, especially if it's a deal that's pretty close. That's where you, mm -hmm. you probably have that initial discussion with the broker to mm -hmm. ask those questions. So looking at outlier items or, or items that are perhaps not as clear or maybe even not mentioned in the OM, right? Or the package that you're receiving. So usually that would warrant that first Q&A call, if you will, with a few questions, not, not a ton, but a few yeah. with the broker to give you that clarity. Um, and, and again, that's pre-LOI. Once you have the LOI and you're under contract, of course, it gets a little bit more detailed from there, but that's how I get those resolved. If it's something external, and by external, I mean something around the market or the property, again, your boots on the ground could do the drive-by or give you that feedback on, on rents, for example, mm -hmm. 
from recent rent service they may have done. Usually that will be your property manager or your one of your partners who's there on the ground on site um, type of thing. So if it's something external, you can also source that information there. But if it's more deal specific, PNL specific, like in your example, mm-hmm. and that would be a good conversation to have with the broker and ask those clarifying questions. If you talk about the rent increase, how do you project the average rent increase per year? That's an excellent question. There are two aspects to it. One is, of course, look at where the market rents are, knowing what your household income is, and you kind of see how realistic it is to closing that gap. And as far as projecting a growth trend, especially over the next year or so, as I mentioned, we are seeing some softness in the market. And by softness, I mean rents declining year over year. They may still be up relative to historical trends, but maybe for that first year, you project zero rent growth if you want to be more conservative. And eventually you, you increase it based on a number that's more closely aligned with long-term historical trends Mm -hmm. versus the anomaly that we saw over the past couple of years. So if you're in a tertiary market, that may mean one and a half to 2% growth year over year. If you're in a primary really strong market, that may mean 4% year over year. And then the second aspect to it is your business plan, right? Because if your plan is to add value, which for a lot of people, that is the case and turn certain units, Realistically, right, if you have a 50-unit property and and 30 of the units need renovation, realistically, you won't be renovating all 30 at the same time, right? It will take some time. Even if you have leases maturing around the same time, you need to stagger those. So looking at monthly projection and baking in the time to turn, the vacancy and all that into consideration is key. So again, depending on the size of the property and the amount of the value add or the lift, you may have to stagger that over one, two or three year period, again, depending on how large your project is. So in that interim period, right, your vacancy will probably be higher. Your rent increases will probably be a little bit more gradual. You won't go from 1500 rent to 2000 overnight. It will take some time to work your way up there. So I also take that into consideration. And that's, I would say, would be in the second or third stage of the underwriting where you want to have that month over month staggering to see what the numbers look like before you revert to that long-term historical growth trend. So a follow-up question on that. It sounds like when it comes to making the year-over-year projection, we need to really consider if it is realistic to carry out the projection. So how much communication do you have with your asset management partner to be like, hey, is this realistic? Can we do it this way? Mm-hmm. Usually that would be yes, your asset manager or your property manager, and in some cases, both. So you definitely want to vet those numbers by them. One, how high can we go realistically in terms of rents? Uh, but secondarily, also your capex. What kind of capex do you need to do? Maybe you're fine if you just do paint and carpet change because that's what yep. the market requires. Uh, but if you really want to get that 300 
dollar per unit bump, maybe you need to do a little bit more to the unit, which would then require a little bit more time. And then you need to factor in that cost. So typically, again, a lot of that happens once you're under LOI and getting towards a contract or even while you're a contract and doing mm -hmm. diligence, right? Because you discover things as you visit the property and do your side visit. Um, so those discussions are ongoing once you find a deal that the numbers work. Got it. And um, when you talk about upgrading the units, like, you know, renovating and all these things, bringing up to the market, do you upgrade all the units or you keep some of them for the next buyer? Excellent question. Again, a lot of that would depend on the market, right? In some cases, for example, for actually for both of our properties, there's very limited supply currently in, in the sub pocket mm -hmm. where we are in. So in many cases, we've been able to renew the leases at a higher lease rate without even doing a heavy lift to those units. Tenants are simply accepting the rate increase because that's one, that's where the market is too there's really nowhere else they can go given the limited supply. In other cases, again, depending on the market for the properties we're currently in, those are not very heavy lift. And, mm -hmm. and part of that is that is predicated on my own investment criteria because I'm currently focused on stable value adds. So certainly you don't want to go renovate all of a sudden 10 units and you end up with a large vacancy, right? Because yeah. vacancy is your, your, the most expensive unit is your vacant unit. So yeah. you definitely want to stagger and manage against that. And then the point you bring up is valid because you want to leave some, as people in the industry know it, meat on the bone, right? For, for yeah. the buyer to execute on that next level of the value add strategy and whether that's um, interiors or improving the exteriors or even adding other income streams. So there's always some work left to do for the next stage of the value add. And you also mentioned about that your markets are in Florida, like Orlando, Jacksonville. And why did you pick those markets? For me, it was a simple reason. One, I already had some presence there through mm. my residential portfolio. I already had a network of people. Now that network has grown and expanded over yeah. time, but I was already in that market and had some familiarity. Also, if God forbid I need to relocate to Florida, I want to be in a nice warm place or, or potentially retire there. So that, that was also a factor. So that's a little bit more personal, not necessarily scientific <laughs> in, any, in any way. Uh, but that's that's how it was. I, I was mm. My other market was Tennessee, so I probably could have gone either way. But I think it's important to just pick one and, and stay focused. Mm. Um, and that's how I, I chose Florida. And of course... Um, I didn't randomly choose Florida to begin with. The underlying fundamentals of the market as far as job growth, population growth, mm. job diversity, quality of jobs, income growth. I look at all these metrics as well because, again, the market is your tailwind, right? That impacts your business plan, how well you execute. Um, so it's important to vet that up front before you dive deeper into the mm. into the needs of the individual investment. So how are you keeping tap on the market? I, I know that underwriting is part of it. And as you keep on tap of the market, what are some of the macro trends that you're seeing right now? 
Yes, yeah, so it's just getting engaged, of course, uh, doing a ton of reading, publications, that's part of it, forums, meetups, conferences, talking to investors, talking to my boots on the ground and my team, and, and like I said, underwriting properties. So there's a number of resources, some are publicly available, like the forums and, 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 and meetups, and others are um, more one-on-one -on -one conversations that I have with my team. What am I seeing specifically for my market? One of the biggest topics right now is insurance. And uh, I think in Florida and Texas, they tend to have pretty high insurance per door, but Hurricane Ian made that even more challenging. And before you could get a quote and feel somewhat safe that that, that will be the rate you're going to get at the closing table, but the insurance costs are evolving pretty rapidly. So once you have a deal under contract, you probably want to check with your broker a few times because it's not uncommon for that insurance quote to change up until closing day right now. And unfortunately, that's usually up. And again, you don't want to have that 100 or $200 per door surprise at the 11th hour yeah. because that can significantly impact your valuations. Taxes is another line item. So it will be interesting to see how or if the market will adjust because we're seeing some moderation in valuations, but that's not how the tax assessor looks no. at the property. And specifically in, in my market, properties are reassessed annually. Um, so you want to factor mm. that major increase that you will likely get hit with um, within that first 12 month period. Maybe not in year one if you close, but the next calendar year you will, right? Um, so you want to factor in that expense, and that's rapidly increasing, mostly because assessed values are increasing as a result of the higher valuations over the, the past couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. So those are a few. And of course, the that's not specific to my market, but uh, a lot of the challenges people are, one of the challenges people are talking about is the is your, is your debt, the debt terms, the debt cost. Um, so you definitely need to run that sensitivity analysis and look at that very closely because rates are rising. Um, they'll likely continue to rise, at least in the short run, until the Fed gets a hold of inflation and, and tames it down. No. So that's something to be expected. And, and really, you should be underwriting for that up front and expect that fluctuation, not necessarily sit and hope that uh, your lending terms won't change. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. sometimes you have, if you're working with a trusted operator, with a exec, with a track record of execution, sometimes maybe they're more predictable, but in the current market environment, unfortunately, that is less and less predictable and a little swing on your lending terms, which again, mm -hmm. represents 50 to 60% of your capital stack yeah. can, um, effectively make a deal uh, not pencil in and you may have to walk away unfortunately due to those unexpected surprises wow that's a lot of information today Vasi, before we wrap this up if somebody wants to reach out to you learn more about it and about you where can they reach out to you the easiest way to connect with me is through my site, uh, dbacapitalgroup.com. D is in dream, B is in believe, A is in achieve. My mm -hmm. uh, contact information is there, phone, email, a link to my Calendly. And I also just released a book, The Busy Professionals Quick Guide to Investing in Multifamily. Mm -hmm. 
so happy to share that with the uh, listeners of your podcast. It's now officially launched on my site, but I, they email me and mention the podcast. I'm happy to share the direct link with them as well. And I'll make sure I mention your website and all the details. If you recommend one book to anybody to read either about mindset or all about real estate, what can they read? About mindset, the one that usually comes to mind and the, one of the first ones I encountered is Think and Grow Rich. The title suggests it's not just about monetary riches. It's really about living a rich, full life and mm. the power of thought and energy. Yeah. I, I reread that a couple of times just to charge myself up periodically. About real estate specifically, there are a ton of books out there. I would say for people who are looking to get started in syndications and multifamily, the best ever syndication book is one mm. that comes to mind. Um, there are a ton I can recommend. I And I also have these listed on my site. So if people want to get a deeper mm. dive into markets, mindset, uh, attracting capital, I have, I've listed those resources there as well. Perfect, perfect. And thank you so much, Vasi, for your time and for all the information you provide. And we'll see you another one. Thank you so much, Aman and Austin. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Vasi. Thank you for joining us on The Real Deal, a commercial real estate investing podcast. The show that covers everything to do with multifamily real estate investing to help you become an expert in your real estate ventures. We're here to help you create passive income and financial freedom so that you can achieve what you want whenever you want. We'll catch you next time on The Real Deal.